Good morning. My tall brother. <laughs> so our family has been camping at Lano State Park, and I came back because I needed to spend time with you guys. But they're still there enjoying the sunshine today. Lots of rain yesterday. Our future son-in-law, Stuart, got rained out out of his tent. What an experience. This is what family's like. <laughs> so it's been fun, though. We've really enjoyed it. I'm really glad to be here with you all. So we have been on, um, oh, at the end of the rows, there are pads of paper and pens. I would like you to pass them out unless you have one already in your possession. Because I'm going to be saying things, a lot of things. And I want you to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, what he is dropping into your spirit. Okay, so like I'm going to say something and you're going to hear it and you're going to go, oh, this makes sense to me. It's going to connect dots for you or something. And I want you to write that thought because I want you to forget everything else I said. I, just want, I really want you to grab on to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and not everything I said because it's too much. It's way too much. And then depending on what you write on that paper, then at the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to have a conversation with God about it. Okay, because he wants to talk to you. He wants to minister to you and love you. And so that's the point. It's not here for me to educate you. Um, I'm not that good at that. It's for you to connect with the Holy Spirit and the words that come forth um, from the teaching. All right? Got Everybody got pen, paper? Nobody's missing? All right. All righty. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Randy uh, started a series called Avoiding the Fiscal Cliff. And he talked about how Moses presents to us an option. He gives us an option of either choosing life or choosing destruction. And he particularly used an Old Testament passage to present this to us. And this choice is really a choice that we all have to deal with currently in our lives. So here is the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. Now listen. Okay, you know, the tone is really important when you read scripture. It's really important because if you think, now listen, then you're like, here it comes, the big squat, you know, the big squat, you know, I was expecting. Really, it is somebody who's like, you got this little kid and you just love this kid. And you say, okay, honey, this is the first day in school. And I just want you to know that there's going to be some bullies and there's going to be some nice people. Usually the nice ones can be the ones that are left alone or something. But, you know, just pay attention to what's going on. And that is the atmosphere and the tone of Moses to his people. All right? Just think kindergarten, first day, dad or mom loving that kid and wanting to talk with them. Okay, now listen. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commandments, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Pretty straightforward. The path that leads to destruction is a life centered around the question, What's in it for me? A life that's centered on God is asking the question, what's in it for God? Now, when we make decisions about where we live, our future career, what we're going to study in college, you know, what we're going to do, whether or not to homeschool, 
whether to accept a job, and we center the question on what's in it for me, that is choosing the me-centered life rather than the life that was centered on God. So the kind of questions I would ask if I was thinking about what God might think would, can the purposes of God be better served if I make this career change? How will enrolling my daughter into this club enhance what God has called her to be? If I make this purchase, use these funds at this time, is that the priority for God? What's in it for God? Sounds strange, doesn't it? And it sounds strange because in our culture and the way we've been brought up, we have been brought up to be me-centered. What's in it for me? But as followers of Christ who want to put Jesus as our guide and leader, things have to be run a little bit different. We pause and we consider what might God think about this decision I'm facing? Now, you all come this morning with having to face decisions, either today or sometime this week. And put that question in your grid, what's in it for God, instead of what's in it for me. And you begin to practice this God-centered life. Now, Moses invites us on behalf of God to choose and to choose life. And so he starts the invitation and I see this as an invitation, and he says, now listen. So now as a result of prayer and our response to God and his leading to our church, we have decided that we need to learn a bit more about what God thinks about finances and money and find out what's in it for God. So we're going to pray. So Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that you are changing the way we live. You're changing the way how we make decisions, and how we view life. And you're allowing us the great privilege of allowing you to be the center of our life instead of us. Thank you so much. I don't have to be God this morning. You are God, and I can submit to you as your tool. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just be doing the work that you do this morning to our folks. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so then... Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been considering the topic called the spirit of mammon. Randy's done an amazing job unpacking that. I'm going to do a little bit more unpacking on it this morning. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And Jesus says, So no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammonas. Now, Jesus says that no one can do this not because it's prohibited, but because it's impossible. There are two opposing masters. They have nothing in agreement. So if you serve one, you are the enemy of the other. And that's what Jesus is saying. It is not possible. So the Greek word mammonas often is translated in some English Bibles, the word money or wealth. But Randy explained to us that it's really not referring to money. It's actually referring to an entity or a power, a force, that exists in the heavenly realm that is attempting to get a hold of our lives, our hearts, our affection, and it wants us to be ruled and serve it. Pastor Randy defined the spirit of mammon as this, a driving, compelling force in the lives of non-Christians and Christians alike. Now, if the spirit of mammon were all we were spiritually dealing with related to finances, it wouldn't be that bad. 
But it has partners. And Randy said I'd be talking about some of the partners it has. It, it binds itself to entities or iniquities that are already residing in our hearts. And with that combination, it makes its deception even stronger and more forceful in our lives. So the spirit of mammon could attach itself to a spirit of fear or a spirit of greed or lust or pride or the need to control or witchcraft or bitterness. For example, Sheila, you're here this morning. Oh, my goodness. Oh, honey, I'm so happy to see you. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. I, we missed you. Oh, praise God. Just put your hand over her direction and just bless her. She's right there in the purple. Oh, my goodness. We love you. Okay, back to seriousness. Okay, so if, for example, when a spirit of mammon is coupled with fear, it might manifest itself like hoarding. You know a hoarder? Maybe you're one. We cannot get rid of this because we may need this someday. Okay? Or that fear may look like somebody who over saves money, percentage of their income in savings, to the neglect of the basic needs of their family or the kingdom. A spirit of mammon coupled with greed might look like a person that can never have enough. They need more and more and more. The iniquity of greed coupled with mammon seeks to ruin that person, demanding she get more money, never satisfied. How many cell phones do we need? And do we need the newest when it comes out? It may lead to workaholism, gambling, banking on winning the lottery, or some other quick money venture. Mammon coupled with pride, desiring a reputation of wealth of effluence, uses deceit, right? You want to give this appearance. It may cause the person to overspend, racking up a credit card debt that is crazy, right? It may look like embezzling or stealing in order to get the look. Mammon coupled with depression might be the motivation behind a shopaholic. I'm not feeling too good today. I know what will make me feel good, a new outfit. So I go to the store, buy a new outfit, and I feel good for a couple more days. The songbook of a shopaholic is Craigslist or Pinterest or mailers showing me what I didn't know I needed. Right? So when the mammon spirit couples itself with another iniquity... Already in a person, the deception is stronger. Now, we're going to look in the Bible of an example of a Christian who battled with the spirit of mammon connected to other things. In Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 13. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. That was a lot of people. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. Couldn't you just see his shirt? Great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they, Simon's fans, believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip <clears throat> everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles he saw. So in this passage, we're introduced to Simon, who's a magician, very impressive reputation among his followers. 
He became a believer. He was baptized. And after conversion, became a devout follower of Philip. When the apostles, Peter and John, arrive from Jerusalem, they start to lay hands on the baptized believers. And Simon is very impressed. This is where we pick up the story. When Simon saw the Holy Spirit was imparted through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he brought money and offered it to them, saying, Grant me also this power and authority in order that anyone on whom I place my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Destruction overtake your money in you because you imagine you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, as an aside, God wants us to have this kind of power. This is not sinful to desire the power of the Holy Spirit working and functioning through us as we lay hands on others. This is part of Simon's design and all of our design. The problem is it is not for sale. Destruction overtake your money and you because you imagine you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is all wrong in God's sight. It is not straightforward or right or true before God. Now, Peter is confronting spirits here that are influencing Simon's spirit, his heart. And he contrasts two economical kingdoms here in this passage. Mammon wants to control by having power and authority, especially by buying and selling, while the kingdom of God operates totally on a different system, which is giving and receiving. Now, please note that Peter is a believer. He is baptized, and he's shadowing Philip for some time, trying to learn all he can by being close to him. But when Simon sees the level of power coming out of Peter and John, the demonic entities that are already residing inside of him begin to manifest. And often that happens. When the power of God will come in a meeting or in a group, things begin to show up. They begin to manifest. And so Simon does what he's always done in the past, He offers some money to buy power and authority. Now Peter discerns something's wrong. And he calls it out. The mammon spirit in Simon coupled itself with another spirit of inequity that was attached to woundedness, the poison of bitterness. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in a bond forged by iniquity. Now if some of you have ever noticed within families that when we start talking about money, Or, like, for instance, if you're looking over a will of the deceased person, that things get a little ugly. Some negative conversations, words start happening. And I believe that that is a spirit of mammon manifesting itself. And he's attaching to hurts and bitterness and issues from the past related to siblings, parent and child, whatever. Anybody agree with that? Have you experienced that? You know, if, if someone dies in your family and you're expecting an inheritance, you better start praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring peace and healing to that community of people because you know what? They ought to be drawing closer together in love and care and comfort instead of what happens. And that's the spirit of mammon. He's ugly. Sometimes I talk to Christians and they have a problem believing that Christians can be bothered or, um, by demons or evil spirits. But in this passage, it is very clear that Simon is a Christian. He is a follower. And he's being controlled by demonic entities. To illustrate the following concept, I'm going to use some diagrams that I was um, taught from by Tommy Hayes from Rafa God's Ministry. So 
let's put that first diagram, diagram one. We are made of spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the body is the soma, is our physical being. Okay? Our hormones, our senses, our, our appearance. The soul, or psyche, includes our mind, our will, our personality, our emotions. In our inner core, our human, as human beings, but it's different than our spirit. Our spirit, the pneuma, is that part of being where we communicate with God, where we connect with, with God, our conscience, our right or wrong, the intuition, the sense of leading of God in the spirit. Now, diagram two. How our spirit, our soul, and our body <clears throat> interact with each other will determine whether we live as a spiritual Christian or a soulish Christian. Now, the side on the left is the way it would look like for a spiritual Christian. The side on the right is what a soulish Christian, how it runs its life. Both are Christians, okay? And I would say that Simon probably was on the right side at this time. A spiritual Christian lives with the columns on the left where the spirit directs its soul and the soul directs the body. But when our soul, our soul is our mind, our emotion, our will, directs our spirit, then our actions are going to be soulish, as illustrated on the column on the right. I have to admit that I struggle in different parts of my life between am I going to live a spiritual life or a soulish life. The soul should be in submission to the spirit instead of leading the way. Now, that may look like making financial decisions based on logic, reason, or the intellect, the mind. Really? Romans 7, 22-25, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Making decisions in, in life based on just logic is soulish. Likewise, making financial decisions based on our will or our desires or our wants is soulish. I want it, I buy it. So we find ourselves overspending, using resources outside of our circle that God gives to us because our wanter is running the show. A soulless decision could be one in which we're driven by our emotional state. Some of us relate to money, riches, and wealth emotionally out of fear or greed or depression or guilt. When we relate to finances as soulish Christians, our lives are going to be out of order and in conflict with the spirit. As spiritual Christians, our spirit should lead our soul and our body in all things. Our soul should be in submission to the spirit and the body should be in submission to the soul. Our spirit would then direct both our soul and body. Now, that might be one of the reasons why a person might want to practice some of the spiritual disciplines. For instance, like fasting. Okay, I am going to attempt to humble my wanter for what X, whatever I want, and allowing the spirit to rise up instead, allowing my spirit to guide me. 
When we allow our emotions to guide our decisions, emotions such as guilt or loneliness or fear, we're going to end up with less than God's best for us. You might be asking, what's so bad about making a logical decision? Any of you asked that when I said that? Nothing, unless that is your driving force in how you make decisions. If your source for making decisions is reason alone and is the primary source that is fleshly or soulish. Now, do not misquote me and say, Pastor Clara said we're to throw out all logic in making decisions. No, that's not what I'm saying. You were given the ability to think and reason, and that is a gift from God. But like every gift from God, it has to be in submission to the Spirit of God. Okay, well, what about the saying, follow your heart? You know, feelings are good. They were given to us by God. And they can be very good in helping us making decisions under submission to the Spirit. They were never intended to be what leads our life. Just because we feel like we're doing something, and in doing it we're following our heart, it may not lead us to happily ever after. You know, that happens in Hollywood and in fairy tales, but not necessarily in real life. Primarily basing our decisions on the model, just follow your heart, is going to be soulish. Teenage girls often are told, follow your heart. Making a decision for a future mate, follow your heart. Buying that thing, follow your heart. No. Put it in the right order. Spirit, communion with God, our conscience, our intuition, talking to God, and then follow your heart. Yeah, that'll work. Not the other way around. Okay, let's look at diagram three. Our mind, emotions, wanters need redeeming. We need them to come under submission to the spirit. Our spirit does not need redeeming. See that white? That is our spirit. When you become a Christian and you've made that decision to follow after Christ, your spirit is redeemed. It is sanctified. It is saved. It is always God's. It is our mind and our emotion and our wanters and our bodies that need redeeming. When people come up to me because I'm not really sure... I'm a believer because I have this struggle. I have this addiction. But that, that's your soul that needs redeeming. But your spirit is his. And I'll show you that later in scripture. The key to becoming whole is therefore submission to the spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit access to any and every pocket of resistance, strongholds or iniquities within our soul and body. Now let's look at diagram four. Our mind and emotions have a God-given function, but it is only as it comes under submission to the Spirit that we can experience their intended blessings. And to the extent that we can submit to the Spirit of God in us, to that extent we will experience the abundant life promised to us. Now as a believer, we can only give to God as much as we can. We do our very best to give to God and surrender to God at any given time. And as we do that, as we surrender, we're able to receive from God. To give God any more than we understand is impossible. But to withhold giving to God what we do understand, that is sin. I don't expect a five-year-old to be able to understand concepts of a ten-year-old. And God understands, what do you understand about me? What do you know about me? Then surrender to that. 
Okay? Don't worry about the person sitting next to you and all that she figures out and what she's doing and where she's headed. Just you and me, babe. Let's get it there. Okay, now. To give God... Okay, I said that already. So, we need to yield our mind, yield our soul, yield our will to God. So, we're just going to say that right now. Jesus, I yield my will to you. Jesus, I, I yield my fears to you. I yield my mind. I yield my wanter. Okay, now... Yours are, what you yielded to him looks different than the person sitting next to you. Is that okay? Can God accept where you are right now? Does he know where you are? Did he expect you to be like the person sitting next to you? No, never. Otherwise, he would have made stacking chairs. They all look the same, right? As we yield ourselves to him in this way, we make more space for him to occupy we make more space to host the presence of the Holy Spirit. As we yield more to God, he fills us more. The Holy Spirit will fill us to the degree that we're able to surrender to him. So what does this all have to do with Simon and the spirit of mammon? The story continues with Peter saying to Simon, So repent. My definition of repent is a biblical definition. is change the way you're thinking. Okay, can we talk about this? Can we just change the way you've been thinking, going? Repent. Of this depravity and wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, this contriving thought, the mind, and the purpose of your heart, your wanter, may be removed and disregarded and forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, poisoned by emotion, and in a bond, stronghold, forged by iniquity. Those inserts are mine. Peter operating in the spiritual gifting of discernment of spirit. And he calls out the lack of order in Simon's life and the way he's making decisions. Simon, you're letting your soul run you right now instead of your spirit. And he calls out the hidden forces inside Simon's request. The mammon spirit attaching itself to stuff that's already there. Now, Simon was a man under the influence of several spiritual forces, right? Jesus, right? He's a believer, right? Can we agree with that? Okay, he's baptized and he's into Jesus. But his soul has incited witchcraft, desiring magical powers for his use. Possibly pride. I mean, he did go around saying, I am the great power. Maybe he renounced that one. We don't know that. So we'll put that to the side. Definitely a mammon spirit operating, buying and selling. And finally, the stronghold a bitterness. Now, Peter is not saying, Simon, you're not a believer. He's simply saying that there are major issues in your heart that need healing, renouncing, freedom. And he shows that the spirit of mammon has attached itself to some of the brokenness already in his heart. When we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, our spirit is where our Holy Spirit, our Holy God, dwells. And when he initially occupies there in our spirit, we often see very drastic and radical changes in our lifestyles, right? Can anybody say that that's been true in their life? Yeah, we just see something majorly happen. But it would be naive to believe that all the issues of my heart, of my soul, are instantaneously converted. 
some of the deeper issues that I'm dealing with, my affections, my heart, are requiring a bit more time, a bit more healing, as many of us who've walked decades with Jesus can attest to. Now, you may be thinking again, what does this have to do with Simon asking to buy power? Now, previously operating in the world system, economical system, Simon would have bought power and pizzazz for money, for profit. It was his livelihood. And he sees this new power, and he wants to add it to his bag of tricks. No puns intended. And so he does what's familiar to him, and he tries to buy it. Buying and selling are key functions of the world system. But they're contrary, right, in a position to God's financial system of receiving and giving. Now, the full significance of what Simon's situation is is at the end of verse 23, when Peter says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in a bond forged by iniquity. Now, some translate iniquity by the words captive to sin, in chains of sin, or a prisoner of sin. Now, some of you feel that way about other things than money. You feel captive to sin, enchained to sin, or a prisoner of sin. This is an iniquity that you're dealing with. The word translated iniquity in this verse is also translated in other places, wickedness, unrighteousness, lawlessness, rebellion. And it's a word used throughout the Bible to describe a force or a power within the heart that is opposed to God. Okay, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 28. And the prophet makes a declaration that most scholars agree this is Lucifer before he falls. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, crystallite, moonstone, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, and worked in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. With an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. You were on the high mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Now, when the fall of humankind happened in the garden, it included more than just sin. It included a transference of iniquity. Satan's iniquity of rebellion was transferred upon us. That driving force within the human heart to rebel and choose to make oneself the center of the world was in it for me, wanting the world the way I wanted when I wanted. Now, there's a difference between sin and iniquity, though the translators don't always help us to see that distinction. Isaiah 53.5 says this, prophetically of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions, sin, He was crushed for our iniquity, the force or power within the human heart that is opposed to God. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned on his own way. What's in it for me? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now the word transgression is the word most often translated sin, and in the New Testament it means missing the mark. Isaiah said that Jesus was pierced or wounded for our sin, for missing the mark, but he was crushed for our iniquity. 
Now, to make too much of this distinction would probably be going beyond what we really can get out of this text. But for some reason, Isaiah makes the distinction between Jesus piercing and wounding and his being crushed for our iniquity. The Apostle Paul also makes the distinction in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all iniquity. Now, sin is error or failure to do what is good and requires forgiveness, just as Jesus was bruised for our sin. Iniquity, on the other hand, is willful rebellion, partners, patterns of habitual sin, strongholds, or driving forces that requires cleansing, repentance, deliverance. And Jesus was crushed for those. So in general terms, sometimes when I minister to a person who feels completely hopeless and unable to change a certain area of their life, they feel like it's beyond their capacity to withstand, that usually is an indicator that we're dealing with something demonic. A base of operation, it seems like a life and energy of his own. In the case of Simon, back in our story to the book of Acts, although Simon was a born-again baptized believer, even so the mammon spirit was still residing and operating in Simon's soul. And Simon is tormented at least by a mammon spirit, the love of money, and the deception that through money, money could produce in life all that he needed. And Peter, filled by the Holy Spirit, then points out and says, Simon, you need deliverance. Again, the function of the spirit of mammon is to get us to empower money with sacred value, the almighty dollar, thus making money our source, our provision, and well-being in life, rather than God as our source. Now, people who make decisions based on money rather than God are bowing to that spirit. Even the fear of the lack of money is idolatry, because we fear that more than fearing God. And until we recognize and renounce the spirit of mammon it, and its ways in us, we're going to find ourselves being pulled by that spirit and never able to fully experience the joy of giving and receiving from God. When we see repeated patterns or driving forces in our lives that could be addictions of any sort, it is critical that we take a part in seeking God for revelation and the root of iniquity so that God can bring us into freedom through repentance, confession, forgiveness, and healing. Now, at the Vineyard, we have a ministry called Freedom in Christ. Those of you that have gone through Freedom in Christ, would you raise your hand? I just want to know what percentage of our folks. Okay. That ministry is to help us get to the root of things, the root of iniquities. And as we do that, a lot of times the behaviors just disappear. They're gone. They're not there anymore. They're not important anymore. They don't feed because that root has been dealt with. Praise God. He's not left us alone without answers or dealing with iniquity. In Isaiah 53, we see the provision of God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus died for our sins and our iniquities. And Peter tells Simon what is the root of his brokenness. For I see you are in the gall, poison, of bitterness, a bond forged by iniquity. The mammon spirit found a place to attach itself, and it was in the soul of Simon, which is bitterness. And once the mammon spirit attaches to bitterness, it begins to defile Simon in other areas of his soul, making money super important and sacred in his life. Now, the antidote for Simon 
or for any of us, is First John 1, 9. If we, forgive, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is the same word as the word iniquity. Just decided someone translated it that way. John tells us there's a cleansing for all iniquity, and the cleansing agent is the blood of Jesus. In order to completely be free of the spirit of mammon, we also have to deal with the iniquity that it has attached itself to. The fear of the lack of money, possibly lack of trust in who God is and his ability to provide for us. Now I want us to listen to this verse. This is a key verse in how I want to close. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove to the people of the world the truth about sin, about being right with God, and about judgment. And he will prove to them that sin is not believing in me. Now the word believing is the same word as trusting. Okay, This is not about sound doctrine or moral belief. This is about trust. To trust something, you have to have some form of relationship and connection. He will prove to them that being right with God comes from by going to the Father and not being seen anymore. And the Holy Spirit will prove to them that judgment happened when the ruler of this world was judged. Now, most people think that the Holy Spirit came to earth to convict us of all the things that we're doing wrong, sin. That God's really angry with us because he's holy and we're not. And that he's going to judge us if we don't stop sinning. But if you look at this verse, that's the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying. Now, if that doesn't rattle some heads here, you didn't hear what I said. Because we walk around believing those lies. Let's read it again. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove to the people of the world, one, the truth about sin, two, about being right with God, and three, about judgment. He will prove to them, one, that sin is not believing or trusting in me. He will prove to them, two, being right with God comes from my going to the Father. That is the resurrection. And not being seen anymore. And the Holy Spirit will prove to them, three, that judgment happened, past tense, when the ruler of this world was, past tense, judged. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of just one sin. First and foremost, the sin of not trusting in Jesus. In any area where we do not believe in Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit is committed to help us change our mind about. That's what we're about. When, as Christians, when we live in this life, we're about helping people change their mind about what they believe about God. Not about their sin, but what they believe about God. Totally different than maybe how we've lived our lives. And secondly, the Holy Spirit is supposed to prove to us that we are already made right with God. It is true that as we surrender to God and his word, and in that surrendering that leads us to right actions, that will free us from iniquities. And our right actions do not make us righteous. Our right actions do not make us righteous. It's a byproduct of already being right. God's calling us to operate in his power and his source to love rightly. And he's called us to reign and to have authority, to have dominion over the earth and over sin. But his righteousness is a free 
gift. Do we believe that or not, folks? Is it a free gift or do we have to work for it? It is a free gift. So when we talk to a non-believer, they don't have to work for it. It is a free gift that we offer to them. Now, is it true that when they get this, that things start changing? Absolutely. Lifestyle starts changing. We start dropping some stuff that we didn't used to do. But they're still going to have junk in their soul. Going back to what we talked about, the circles. That does not disqualify the fact that their spirit is righteous in God. Is this connecting? Making sense? All right. Did you guys all know this? No. Okay. I think I've known it, but I'm getting it more and more inside. God is calling us to operate in his power, his resources to love rightly. Now listen to this because this point is very important. Our perceptions of ourselves is critical for the process of freedom. The true perception of ourselves is that we are already righteous. Through Christ, we've already been made right. Do not let Satan tell you anything else. If you have an addiction, guess what? You're already made right with God, but your soul is in a mess. Granted. Your soul's got some problems. There's some resistance. Let's deal with that as we can. Are we okay with that? Because we're going to have a lot more mercy in this church and for the lost when we get this straight. I can have mercy for the person sitting next to me if they're not tithing. Right? I can have mercy for them if they talk too much. I can have mercy if they don't talk enough. You know, whatever the thing is, it's okay. Yeah, I don't, God doesn't want them to stay there. I don't either. But they're already right in God. And what can we do to help them surrender that which they know so that God can fill them more? Our focus is to be upon our righteousness in Christ, not camped out on our iniquities in the soul. We need to deal with the iniquities of the soul, but that is not to be our focus. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus according to Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.2. And this is, I think, the last verse. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that, he, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit will prove to us the fact that the devil has already been judged and he has no power to judge us anymore except that which we give him power to do so. So if you want to listen to Satan tell you you're a crap, then that's your deal. But that is not how God sees you. Do not walk out of here thinking God is judging you as a bad person. There's, that's not possible because of the cross. Did it or didn't it count? Do you believe that it counts? And if you do, you are righteous. You, your family there, all of you righteous in God. Do you have problems? Well, welcome to the club. It's called the church. The church has problems. The soul needs redeeming. The body needs redeeming. My body 
definitely needs redeeming. When I was 20, I thought, not, not so much. But I'm in my 50s. It needs redeeming. I'm looking forward to it. Okay? Right? But my spirit is good. It's good. God says, it's good. I've made you right. Don't forget it. Don't let Satan tell you anything else. All right. I don't think I need to say anything more. But we're going to do something. Because I told you to write something on papers, didn't I? Did you write anything? Did something speak to you? Was God saying, hey, this is me for you. And maybe, wow, right there at the end she was saying so much I didn't want to write anything. So take a moment and write it down right now if something hit you. I'm just going to give you a second to write that down if you didn't get a chance to. Now, Jesus is into giving and receiving. And this morning, he would like to receive some of your junk. Isn't that nice? He would like to write anything you wrote on that paper that was junky. Well, you thought about, I don't like that about myself. Or, yeah, I got that problem, whatever. He would like to receive that. And then he's going to give you something in exchange. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. And imagine some kind of container on your lap. Okay? It could be a basket. It could be a box. It could be whatever. And Jesus is saying, what do you want to give me, son? What do you want to give me, daughter? Put that junk in the box. Come on. Put it in the container because I want it. Put in the shame. Put in the regret. Put in your bitterness. Put in perfectionism. Whatever it is, tell them what it is. And then say, Jesus, I give this to you. And then ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want to do with this box? Then ask him, Jesus, what would you like to replace for that box?
Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you're doing this morning of convicting us where we've not trusted Jesus. And thank you for the great exchange. Thank you that you freely give us your love, your peace, your joy. And fill us now, Lord. Fill us. Seal this work. Seal the accusations or seal this work, Lord, with your love. And present it deeply into their hearts, Lord. That part of their soul that they surrendered to you this morning now is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We just thank you for your love. Amen. All right. Well, the service is over. Was that good for anybody? That was good. I knew God wanted to do something special today. So, but if you need prayer about anything else that you felt like that didn't hit the nail for you, then you come up here. There'll be some folks from the community group, uh, Rondaire community group will be up here praying for you and loving you and all that. And then take your bulletin, the church program, to Grady's. Okay? And if you cannot afford to eat over there, then you need to tell somebody in this church, I really like to eat there, but I can't I don't have the money. Give them an opportunity to put to practice something they put in that box. By able to give to you and you be able to receive. Okay? Sound good? Okay. I love you. Come forward if you need prayer. Otherwise we'll see you next week. <laughs>